Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 330 with Yancey Stricker of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you are doing well wherever you are around the world. Nathan Chan here, CM Publisher of Founder Magazine. And welcome back to another awesome interview. Today, we're speaking to Yancey Strickler, and he is one of the co-founders of a company called Kickstarter. Now, you most likely have heard of this company. Um, basically, when it comes to crowdfunding, it is the biggest platform that people use to bring ideas to life. Uh, Yancey's kind of, uh, he's not actively the CEO of Kickstarter anymore, but we talk about humble beginnings, how he created this incredible platform and uh, yeah, like how it's powered the creation of so many different ideas, businesses, brands, like it's insane. Even Founder, like we created a coffee table book. Some of you may or may not know if you go to founderv1.com, um, you know, we crowdfunded that book and we raised uh, over a couple hundred thousand dollars from you guys in the community to bring it to life. And uh, it's such an incredible platform to, you know, if you have an idea for a business, but you don't know if it should exist in the world, you can use uh, platforms like Kickstarter to bring these ideas to life. But what I talk to Yancy also about is not only his journey uh, around founding Kickstarter, but also his idea around his newest book, This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world, where we talk about 
this idea of bentoism and how this simple framework could really change your life. And we talk about the four questions that you can make to have better decisions. Um, it's a really, really interesting process and philosophy. This was a fascinating interview. I know you're going to get a ton from it. Guys, um, as I always say uh, before we jump in, if you are enjoying these interviews, please do take the time to leave us a review. Please do share this with your friends. We work ridiculously hard. Uh, we have somebody full-time. All they are doing is going and finding these incredible guests uh, for you guys to you know, hear how the hell they have built these incredibly successful businesses. We find founders that, you know, mo usually don't have the time for most people. Thankfully, we have an incredible uh, community of like hardcore founders like you guys uh, that, you know, we can, uh, we can convince people to come and share their knowledge and wisdom and experiences on our platform. So please do share this with anyone that you think will get value. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. Yancy, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. So uh, the first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how'd you get your job? Well, I mean, what is my job? Is <laughs> a great is a great question, but um, I mean, the job of Kickstarter, say the you know the the job of of building that um, came through actually just sort of a a chance a chance encounter meeting Perry Chen, who'd first had the idea for Kickstarter a couple of years before, meeting him in in Brooklyn at a restaurant and you know, we, we became friends and he ended up sharing with me this, this idea he had had uh, a few years before where he'd wanted to put on a concert in new Orleans and he was going to have to pay like $20,000 up front. And he, you know, just couldn't front that kind of money and had the, the notion instead of what if I propose the idea for the concert online um, and people put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one is charged unless the show sells out. But at this moment when we met, this is 2005, and this is a dramatically different internet. You know, this is still a period where if you had a website, you needed to have a, a closet full of servers and a smelly dude standing outside, like running cable all day. And, um, but yeah, Kickstarter for me began with, with us meeting. And at the time I was a music journalist and I had a record label that I had started and ran on the side. And, you know, I was just living in New York and loving culture and just trying to hustle my way into, you know, doing cool things and then just, you know, made a new friendship and, and just started building something. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, like, what did the first version of the product look like? Who was the, yeah. How'd you get your first like backers? Was it, was it that concert itself? No, the con that concert never ended up happening. <laughs> uh, but the the very first project was one by Perry, which was to try to make a uh, hundred screen printed T-shirts, and that project actually failed. The second project was by he and I and a friend of ours to make a book. The idea was um, we would have a hundred page book, and there was there would be a hundred backers of the project, and if you backed the project, you got to 
fill one page of the book with whatever you wanted. So it was a 100, 100 pages, 100 author book uh, that got funded. But I mean, the first version of the product, I mean, the first version, the first mock-up of the project of the product was in like 2005, 2006. You know, there was a clear vision of what Kickstarter should be, but it took like three, three plus years to build it because we were non-technical founders, co-founders, mm-hmm. myself, Perry and Charles Adler. We were hiring external developers, making a lot of dumb, you know, a lot of just, just not great decisions. And so it took quite a while, but the vision was always there, but it took almost four years for it to be executed, uh, despite like, you know, trying, trying hard all the way. But, you know, one of the things that was always so critical was that, you know, we, we were focused on artistic and creative projects. You know, when Perry had imagined the idea for crowdfunding, we saw that it could be used to buy Jenny a prom dress or like send someone to college. It could be used for anything, but to us, fundraising meant charity and meant like guilt and meant, you know, a very different culture than what we imagined. And what was more exciting to us was people coming together around new ideas. And we felt like a, a, a place that would support new ideas would need to have a certain kind of culture, a certain kind of energy. You wouldn't want it to be guilt-based. You'd want it to be like enthusiasm, passion-based, like, you know, fan community-based. And so you know, we were very conscious of, of what the, the culture of the site would be in terms of who it was intended for. And so from the very beginning, like we, we, it was invite only to get in. We had firm rules about, you know, you couldn't do charitable things. And we, we were trying to build a very specific kind of community. And, um, and that led to like excluding a lot of things. And, you know, there is a path where Kickstarter could have pursued becoming like the Walmart of crowdfunding or something. Um, but, you know, we were always very clear that our goal was to, to serve this audience, to build a product, solving this challenge of how creative ideas get put into the world. And um, yeah, and that was always that North Star. Now, I know you also recently uh wrote a book called This Could Be Our Future. And I'd love to talk about that and the whole premise of the book. But before we do, I'd love to still just talk a little bit more about the origin story because, um, you know, a lot of people uh, can find this kind of stuff uh, really intimidating, right? Like when you want to start a business, especially Mm -hmm. software, especially a two-sided marketplace, um, it's certainly not easy. Um, so I'm curious when you said you guys, uh, weren't technical co-founders, did you have, like, did you have to raise VC in the early days or what was the cost of the MVP? Like, did you just use like a landing page or like, like even that back then would have been difficult. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. I'm, I'm traveling back in time in my mind right now because these are some of these are things I haven't thought about in so long. Um, I do think that, you know, we started working on it in 2005, you know, we were perpetually like a year away from launch, from launch, you know, and, uh, it just because of, yeah, just issues. And, um, but it finally launched in in 09 and it was definitely an easier time to create. It's, it's harder. It was a harder, 
uh, technical challenge to create a product in. I mean, we we did get to use AWS and you know EC2, and uh, we use Amazon Payments to start. So we were able to chain together you know a lot of the libraries that are out there and to sort of you know patchwork together a lot of the uh, the product. But it was still like there was still some barrier to entry. I feel like I feel like now it's much tougher. And also at that point, the the existing you know players were not as powerful and as and as entrenched. You know, two thousand nine is a is a very different time. Um, the first landing page. Um, well, first off, our name was first Kickstarter with no e because we couldn't afford the domain with like er. Oh. So it's tr.com. There you go. That's a yeah. good one. <laughs> that's that's some real talk, real talk. And we initially the landing page, the landing page, I think it just listed websites that we loved. And that was it. It was just like a list of 15 websites. And I, you know, it was like Mux Tape, I remember was one of them, Justin Ulett's old project. Um, you know, maybe uh, maybe Etsy. I I forget what all was on there, but it was just like what we thought of as cool. I think Craigslist was one just like what we thought of as like what was cool. And that was it. And it's like, get in touch if you want to talk. That was like the first, oh, wow. the first splash page was it just like just showing love and, and, you know, just trying to send signals to the people that we thought were kind of most influential, the people whose, whose approval we wanted. But yeah, I mean, in terms of fundraising, we had like friends and family money uh, early on and, and most of that, most of that came from uh, artists, um, you know, creative people that we knew who, you know, several of whom we were just trying to pitch on the idea of ever using the product. And then those conversations ended up leading to them, you know, becoming an investor, you know, asking to become an investor. And, um, and so the earliest money came from there. Uh, and then there were other people that we were connected with, but like all like, you know, not, not really professional, um, you know, not, not like a, you know, institutional investor by any stretch. And then that, that got us basically to a launched product and, you know, no one like developers getting paid, no one else getting paid. Um, and at this point there are three co-founders and, and, and where things turned for us technically, it was about maybe eight months before launch, we got connected with a guy named Andy Bayo, a great guy who runs waxy.org and started upcoming.org. And he's like a, a, a king of a certain part of the internet. And he ended up, we really connected and he helped us connect us with a couple of good engineers. And one of whom Lance Ivy became like our principal architect for the next decade. Uh, and then things started to pick up. Um, but the first you know, we, we, we met with a lot of VCs during that pre-launch phase and everyone in New York, we never went to California and really there was very little interest, you know, and we were pitching the idea of crowdfunding and we were explaining to people the idea of crowdfunding. And again, there just was not much interest. People just were like, this isn't, you know, they just didn't see it. The only people that, that, gave us any kind of positive signal were Union Square Ventures, which had been like our dream fund to like work with Fred Wilson because we loved reading his blog and we learned about entrepreneurship so much from reading Fred and reading Brad and Albert. They're all, they all great, very insightful. And we met with them and we like pitched them on the idea of crowdfunding and you know, their immediate response was, yeah, we buy that. So why, why, why are you all the ones to do it? And 
I remember being so surprised by anyone <laughs> responding by saying that they buy it. They like almost didn't know what to say. Um, but after we launched, after we were live for about three months, um, we ended up raising a Series A from Union Square uh, and from Fred Wilson, and and it was you know it was USV and then like fifteen to twenty other angels that kind of Fred connected us to that you know when, once you get a green light from someone like that, there's just like there's some red phone that lights up and everyone hops on a deal, right? So you. You know, we, we found people there that we thought were really aligned with our vision. Um, but one thing we said to, to them from the beginning was that we were not looking to exit, that the goal of the company was uh, to be a kind of a public institution, that it would like do its thing, that we thought, you know, it should be doing profit sharing or dividends, that kind of thing. And that this should be just a company that's just run well. And as it does well, everyone does well. And, um, and so we told that to everyone from the beginning and, you know, and, and I've always like held to that as, you know, part of what is important about the company, that it's not trying to financially maximize itself. And in that way, sort of betraying the community that it's meant to serve. But, you know, that, that, you know, that series A, I mean, that was less than a million dollars and that got us to profitability. We were, we were profitable 14 months after launching. And the companies oh, wow. has stayed that way. So, and we stayed that way by staying small. You know, we never, never hired like big marketing teams to try to drive growth. It was always like, you know, you build the right oh. product. Yeah. You build the right product. You get the right word of mouth. You, you focus on, um, you know, certain things. Um, and it, you know, just built out that way, but we always really focused on, on operating in the black because, you know, it's, it's hard enough to make good decisions consistently, but to do that with like the added emotional challenge of like this existential doubt, or I, this needs to deliver an X way or else, like I definitely like competition. Those things can drive good behaviors, but I think being behind the eight ball, maybe it makes you creative, but I don't think that creates great decision-making. And so, you know, I always thought of our of our independence and our profitability. It's just a way that we had the breathing space to like make good decisions. Um, and it was just a way of trying to protect that. Yeah. Wow. That's really smart. And I'm curious, like how come, like, cause usually VCs want to return in form of a big exit. Um, were, how come they were okay with that, that vision? I think a few things. One is that we were like, uh, category defining player in a totally new field you know it, when usd put in like kickstarter was not a you know like we were not a runaway immediate success it was like an organic build of like you know maybe a year year and a half to get to a certain level um but i think they bought into the space uh, we fit their thesis their thesis then was all about like you know decentralized peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces and you know, the amount they invested was, was small. I think they liked us as, as founders. And Fred wrote a blog post years later where he said, like, everyone says what we said. Uh, so in a way, he doesn't totally believe it when people say it. Um, but like when he wrote this post five years later, he was like, but I do believe it now that like, you know, they mean this vision for the company. And, you know, the same for, for Union Square Ventures, the same 
you know, we're in the same fund as Twitter, Tumblr, Etsy, Foursquare. You know, that was like one of the all-time great unions, you know, venture funds um, was like their 07 to 09 fund, um, which we were a part of. Uh, but you know they're great. They're great partners. You know they like we. It, when Kickstarter became a public benefit corporation, it was Albert Wenger, w- one of the USV partners, that like, you know, really put that in front of us. And um, you know, Fred was a, you know, been a great mentor to me. Um, and and yeah, you know, just great people, and that, you know, care about the right things. And and they're you know that's the kind of thing where you whether it's a coincidence or not, they care about the right things and they also do really well for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and also they are everyone's first pick, you know, when you go out, it's like, you know, you go to, you know, you have your Harvard and you go on down like, you know, USBs mm-hmm. and that kind of tier. And yet they are, you know, not nearly as greedy or aggressive as, you know, probably everyone else on that list. Um, and so, yeah, they, yeah, I think very highly of them. Yeah, well, well, look, um, thank you for sharing. I'd love to kind of switch gears and talk about uh, your your book. This could be our future. So, um, what compelled you to write it? Well, you know, before Kickstarter, I had been a music critic, so like I'm a writer first, and and that's you know, it's how I think. But after, yeah, after I left Kickstarter, I stepped down as CEO three years ago and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I ended up going through an, an interesting journey of, uh, uh, of trying to decide upon that. And, uh, but while I was CEO, I had uh, given this talk at Web Summit one year, the big conference that was in Dublin then. And, um, and, and in it, I, I talked about what I saw happening in my neighborhood in New York. Uh, I lived at the time in the Lower East Side, and there had been a a place around the corner from where I lived called Mars Bar that had been a punk dive bar in like the 80s, you know, so it's like part of CBGBs and like New York scene. Um, And in 2013, uh, that Mars Bar got torn down and replaced by a TD bank, a bank branch. And what was crazy was that there were already four other of that exact same bank branch within a 15 minute walk of that same corner. There were like two other ones in the same neighborhood. Here's the third of the same bank in our neighborhood and pushing out like a landmark. And, uh, you know, as someone who lived in the neighborhood, it was like, how, how come no one has a say? And, and like, and how does this make any kind of sense? And so I ended up researching this and, and learned that like the number of bank branches in New York City had increased by like a thousand between the mid 2000s and the mid 2000 teens. And I realized that if you look a map out of where all the bank branches are, it's nuts. I mean, they're everywhere. And this was largely happening as a form of real estate speculation and branding. And these are like liability write-offs. There's a lot of financial machinations that happen with this. But I also realized that in every one of these storefronts, there had once been something like Mars Bar, like a, a place by a New Yorker for the fellow New Yorkers, and those places are being pushed out. And so I just gave a talk about how there were a lot of values at play here. You know, there's the value of the community, there are the goods and services they need, there's tradition, there's like all kinds of things. Um, but yet there is this value of financial value, which just overrules all of them and actually overrules everything. And that truly, if you looked at the world 
through this lens, you could see that we all operated according to this invisible assumption that the right choice in any decision is just whichever option makes the most money. And that in most areas of life, like we tend to function on that, you know, we just assume that's the case. That's how companies function. And, and really that's how a lot of people guide their lives too. And, um, and so I called this out and I, and I showed how this was like, why there's so many more movie sequels and, and this talk struck a chord. It became like uh, a transcript of it became like number one on hacker news for a couple of days. And I kept like talking about these ideas in public and they, they just really connected and, and, and they, it was just a way to, to make something visible. That's like harder to feel. So when I left, I, I, I really was interested in digging more into that idea. And, and so I spent a year and a half um, writing a book that is uh, uh, really, really argues, takes on this argument of, um, of how we came to believe uh, in financial maximization, this assumption that the right choice is whichever option makes the most money. And I show that this idea is actually fairly recent that it really began to dominate culture in the 1970s. Uh, but it hasn't always been here. We think that this is natural or how things have always been, but it's not. I show this, this study um, where UCLA, since the 1960s, uh, does a, a, a massive survey of college students all across um, the United States and asking them about their goals in life. And they're supposed to rank like 12 goals according to how essential they are. And one of these goals is to be rich is to be very well off financially. And in 1970, the percentage of American college freshmen who said being rich was an essential or very important life goal was 28%. 28% of them said that was very important. That year, the number one life goal was to quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 86%, 86% saying wow. that is essential or very important. In 2016, the last year this study came out, um, the percentage of college freshmen who said being rich is essential or very important, 84%. The percentage you say having a meaningful goal in life is important is about 40%. The, the percentage of, and you can see year by year how this belief grew. The, the percentage of college students who want to start a family, the same. Percentage of college students who want to be an artist, the same. Percentage of college students who want to you know, excel in their field, the same. But there's been this growth in a, in a belief in wealth. And um, so I like talk about how that, why I think that happened, uh, ways that I think are, it is rational, um, ways in which I think we have adopted a value system that also gets us into trouble. And then in, and in the second half of the book, I, I argue for a, a positive evolution uh, in saying that we base a lot of these assumptions about the primacy of financial value on the idea of self-interest at the core of Adam Smith's idea of wealth of nations is self-interest, that a, a man will act according to his or her self-interest, uh, which I think is true, and that, and that we should trust people to act according to their self-interest. However, I believe that we have settled on too narrow a definition of what self-interest is because of a, um, a long line of uh, philosophical ideas that sort of culminated in game theory. We view self-interest as like this individualistic right now desire, like self-interest is what I need right now. And in the book, I introduce a framework that expands how we define self-interest. And that shows that 
our self-interest is, is about what we want and need right now, but it is also about what our future self wants and needs, about what our now us of our friends and our family, the people that depend on us, the people whose lives we shape with our actions, what they want and need, and also what future us, what our kids and everybody else's kids, what they want and need, and that every choice we make leaves a footprint in all of those spaces. And that like we operate in a way that now that we are blind to most of the ways that our decisions impact our lives and the world. Um, but I created a very simple framework, a two by two framework that has these four boxes, now me, future me, now us, future us, that I call the BENTO. It's an acronym for beyond near-term orientation. Uh, but this simple framework is a way um, to see beyond right now. And, and like the Japanese bento box, which has four compartments and a lid, which lets you carry a variety of dishes without them getting spoiled. And, and the bento box also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And so bentoism is the same idea, but for our self-interest, our values, our choices, and how we see the world, a, a way to help us, to help us see the longer term and to help us see uh, the people in our lives more clearly. Because I think we, like this, this for me came out of a personal desire to be, a, to be better, to like not let myself down, to not let my friends down, to not let my family down. And knowing that it's hard, it's hard to act that way all the time. And that for hard things, we need tools. And so this, this is simply a tool um, I think to, to help us find, you know, better decisions and, and I, I truly think a, a better world. Yeah. Wow. This is really, really interesting. Um, because it's so crazy when you started saying around, like, usually the, the conscious decision we make is what mm -hmm. makes the most money. And you're like, anyone, as soon as you hear that, you're just like, yeah, wow, that's so true. Even from a business context, like the, the, you know, your first batch of hires, it's like, well, what, what, what are the, what are the revenue attributable roles that you can bring on to, to, mm -hmm. you know, build the company. And, and I think then if you look from a personal life standpoint, it's all, it all comes back to that. So I'm curious from your findings, what caused this? I think there are a few different things. I think there's a, there's a philosophical, you know, line of thinking that starts I think it goes back to utilitarianism and like in Adam Smith and capitalism, but in the 20th century game theory, which was like the, uh, the study of conflict um, that happened at the defense department in the United States. Um, it was just a way to study like how human beings interact with one another. And it produced this, this notion of like this, this rational man. And the rational man is someone who optimizes for their own self-interest. And it models out human behavior where it just assumes that like any time two people meet, it is a conflict and that one must be trying to get something from the other. And there began to be these assumptions baked in about who a person was. There's, yeah, there's, the, the, I could, there's a whole chapter, there's a whole chapter there, but, but um, these ideas ended up having a strong influence on a school of, a, on the theories of economics and really how um, the notion of you know, free market economics took over and especially began to shape how businesses operated. And the, the, like the crystallizing moment um, was in 1970 when the U.S. was mired in the Vietnam War. 
And there started to be a lot of noise and people protesting saying, you know, American soldiers are losing their lives. You know, Vietnamese people are losing their lives. Everyone's sacrificing. What are companies doing for the greater good? What are they doing for their country right now? And, uh, and, and Milton Friedman, this Nobel Prize winning economist, brilliant man, wrote this uh, editorial in the New York Times arguing that uh, the only social responsibility a business has is to maximize its profits. And the only, and the only uh, basically the only client a business should be thinking about is its shareholders, because as the owners of the company, they are the ones who are responsible for the risk and, and also must receive all the reward and all decisions must be made with their interests in mind. And this was like a, um, a super compelling argument for a few reasons. Number one, it was like at the time, uh, businesses really were viewed and judged according to like their civic virtue. They were members of the Kiwanis Club. Like you, you, the company was a brag about how many employees they had and how long they were, how long tenured they were. Like it was a very different calculus of what it was to be a company. But, you know, Friedman made this argument during a time of a new American recession and one that got quite worse. So people went looking for a solution to where people were. The other big change that Friedman made was arguing that the company's core constituency was its shareholder rather than its employee or its customer or its supplier or its larger community, which had all been a part of the thinking before. Like the business culture before was uh, a quite well-rounded idea. Uh, but this was an argument that actually you should only be thinking about Wall Street when making choices and that if every decision results, you know, optimizes for that share price, then that is you providing your public service. And so you can track at this moment, um, just a couple of years after this, like uh, the pay for American workers has been stagnant ever since, like layoffs and those things began in the major way, stock buybacks like companies laying off people and then distributing that cash to investors began in a major way. And like the operating manual for companies really shifted at this moment. There was a period in the, the end of the 60s where kind of the, you know, the old, the old order of capitalism, which we call the golden age of capitalism of like the 1940s to the late 60s began to stumble. And this new financialized notion of what a, the purpose of a company was took over. And, and so there's just like this, this mindset that uh, has been taught in business schools, that is taught into what it is to be successful, that's just part of the, the water we all swim in. And I didn't understand this at all until Kickstarter. I, I mean, I, like, I didn't study business in, in college. You know, I was like an English, English major. But being inside the company, uh, you know, and even inside a company that was so mission oriented, um, you could feel what the assumptions were as a company, as a for-profit company, like what the assumptions were of what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to, you know, maximize profits in these sorts of ways. You were supposed to try to raise as big a VC funding as possible. Um, and, you know, we thought about all those things, but we also watched our friends do those things and, and watched and watched the pain of it. Watched how raising a ton of money meant, you know, you're just basically signing a post-dated check. And every decision from that point had to ladder back to meeting that post-dated check. And how, what a slippery slope it was to go from, let's send one newsletter a week of just stuff we think is cool, to like, let's send five a day, look at what, they're, look at what the numbers are like. And just how easy it is to justify yourself into those positions. And also, especially seeing in meetings and me being 
and, and me making a financial decision in these in these meetings, but where you have a tough decision, a 50-50 decision, and maybe choice A has a clearer revenue outcome, but there's like some non-revenue negative things that you don't quite know how to quantify. Choice number two has the revenue is slightly less, the other things aren't an issue. Nine times out of 10, everyone's going to choose choice A, right? And they're only going to choose choice B when it's a when it's a a crisis, and they feel like they have to apologize. Um, and 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 what's happening in that room is that even everyone can feel emotionally why this why this you know is a harder decision, um, but we lack the language to have like a real rational conversation. You know, it's like the money thing is rational, real. Everything else is just feelings and emotion. And it is that now because we haven't learned how to express that in a way that I think is can be as operational as it should be. Um, so I think a lot about just those tough moments that every organization faces where it's like, there's the thing our heart wants us to do. There's the thing the calculator tells us to do. There's the thing everyone else tells us how to do, what to do. And nine times out of 10, you go with the calculator and you just hope that if we make enough, we can fix this later. And, and, you know, and that's not evil thinking, but it's just, it's hard to back yourself out of that. And, and so how can we as individuals, how can we as, you know, leaders, how can we as organizations, how can it be not as hard to do the right thing? I, you know, I don't think we should promise to make it easy to do the right thing, but can we make it not as hard to do the right thing by creating a, a language, metrics, a framework um, that tries to put into, yeah, just like put into a user interface, the stuff that today we know matters, but we struggle to talk about and we struggle to make good decisions about. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind was uh, let's talk about your decision-making framework bento, because I think that will be really valuable to people because when you do think about business, especially in the early days and anyone that's watching or listening, you know, cash sales cures all. Right. And it's the lifeblood of any business. So, yeah, can we talk about that more around how people can yeah. make better decisions? Because I think that will really serve people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, um, so I think of it as, um, you know, there, there are these four dimensions. There is now me. Um, and so for a business, now me is the need for profitability. Like that is your now me as a person is security, food, like what you need to sustain yourself. Um, but you know, so that is absolutely critical, uh, of course, but if, if as a person, you only focus on now me, like you're not really getting anywhere as a company, if only you're trying to do is to maximize for that profitability. Um, yes, you are successful in one dimension, but I would argue that you will ultimately not meet your full potential, um, by only seeing that one space. So like, so yeah, so there is the now me that we all need. Um, future me is like, when I think of my future me, I'm imagining like the ultimate version of me, the, the version of me I hope I get to be when I grow up, you know, the, the one that made the right choices. Uh, as a company, your future me are your values. These are the red lines you can never cross. This is like the brand promise. If you buy our product, like we are promising you these ideals, right? And so for you to think about your future me, you're saying like, these are the things that must always be true uh, of me as a person or as me as a company to for me to be in integrity with who I am, for me to be really who I am, for me to be authentic, uh, and for me to create meaning. You know, your now us is, is 
as a company is thinking about all the stakeholders. It's uh, my nawas, it's my investors, it's my employees, it's uh, it's my suppliers, it's my most important customers. And for each of those people, there is a specific expectation that they have from you. And it's like being very clear on what that is. If you're an investor, you like you tell them you're always going to be transparent with updates, like you do that. You know, as a as a company, you make a, a customer promise and you know your products must always fulfill that. And this is like a, a a reminder, a framework to always keep that in mind. And the future us is like uh, you know, for a company is your the vision where you want the world to be in 10 years, you know, and, and and so what is that bigger ideal that you're working towards? And so if, if you as a company have these things defined in this bento framework, you're you're basically looking to make decisions and, and to choose courses of action that light up all of these boxes, that satisfy all of these desires. And so a, a real a real case would be Apple. So if we imagine Apple's bento, so Apple's now me. Um, Apple's mission statement is tools for the mind that advance humankind. So Apple's now me is tools for the mind uh, and be profitable. All right. That is Apple's now me goal. Um, Apple's future me goal. So this is their like their brand ideal. I'm going to sink this down to just say think different, like to take their 90s ad campaign. Apple's future me think different. Like that's this sort of the essence of, of them. Apple's now us. Uh, well, to think just specifically about their their customer promise, um, you know, Apple has always made a customer promise of being like the technology that just works. If you go back to the '80s, where it's like Mac versus DOS, right? Mac had the mouse, DOS was you know C colon, uh, and so Mac has always been the just works tech. More recently, they also make privacy a lot of privacy promises and and promises about being a walled garden, and then Apple's future us is once again, tools that advance the mind for humankind, plus grow Apple, <laughs> plus growth is the other thing they want. So if we think about two Apple products, uh, two recent Apple products, we will see how important the Bento is. So first, if you imagine the AirPods, the AirPods. So are the, are the AirPods a good product from the Bento perspective? Well, the now me for Apple says tools that advance humankind. Yeah, sure, ben AirPods, cool. Uh, future me think different. Do the AirPods think different? Yeah, yeah. There's no wire. You know, totally a think different Apple kind of product. The now us. Well, for customer, they want things that just works. Well, this is where the the AirPods are kind of magical. You put them in, they just play. You pull them out, they stop. You know, the in and out thing is like pretty magical. So yes, definitely on now us. Future us, growing Apple, sure. Yeah. So like the AirPods. Most importantly, the AirPods satisfy this think different ideal and this like just works ideal. Now, if you compare that instead to the touch bar, the touch bar that went on Mac laptops two years ago, um, new product came out at the same time. Uh, yes, it satisfies this think different idea, but the touch bar doesn't just work. It doesn't offer any real utility. It satisfies just one part of like what makes Apple Apple, but it doesn't fulfill all of them. And so in that way, it's, it's a failure. It's a failure as a product because it doesn't adequately meet those expectations or exceed those expectations and sort of express the essence of who they are as a brand, as a company. And so I refer to that ideal as coherence an ability to create coherence. This is where like multiple wavelengths come together and create something more powerful as a result. And so when you, when you make decisions with the awareness of all of these spaces, just like the, the, 
the impact of what you do is so much greater because it's just like truly in line with who you are. And so you could do this as an organization. And then I do it as a person too. You know, I, I've lived according to my bento for like, you know, two years now and it, it's tremendous. Yeah. Wow. I'm really curious. Like what a on a personal level, um, like what are, what are the values that, that you draw against when you live against like, like to your bento? Um, so my now me um, is to show people the matrix. So, um, you know, to know my now me, I ask myself, what do I want to need right now? And I like brainstorm a million things. And I said, I need like financial security, good health, like, you know, projects that I'm excited to work on. And I, tr- I tried to sum this up in this simple idea of show people the matrix. So like I'm at my best when I'm connecting ideas and just like helping people, helping guide people. Um, that's like when I'm most in line, when I'm like kind of in sync with who I am. My future me, so like my older, wiser version of me is always telling me to create harmony. So my parents divorced when I was young. So I like have a lot of like, I need to bring people together is core to who I am. And my other one is don't sell out. Like my whole career, like the idea of betraying my values for financial reasons has always been like a big red line. So like that's a voice that's always there. My now us is about a very core group of family and friends and having deep time with them. By deep time, I mean, when I'm with my friends, I never look at my phone, like I'm all the way there. Um, and my future us is about, so what is the world I want for my child, for my kid? I want a better matrix. It's not that there isn't a matrix guiding our choices, but there's one that's like more fair, more sustainable, you know, w- working to all of our benefit. And so I make choices and think about my life through, through the lens of my bento, where I'm like, am I doing things that fulfill who I am? And I use it to ask real questions. And so a, a, an example I had not long after coming up with this was I, I get asked to do talks for companies. And, and sometimes I get asked to do talks for like companies I don't really like, you know, like say a pharmaceuticals company or something like that. And I, you know, and I, in the past, I've always said no to these things. And I also feel kind of pissed off for even being asked for some reason. Um, but I got asked one of these not long after making the bento. And so I thought, okay, I should ask the bento what it says. And so I asked my now me, should I do this talk for a company I don't like? The now me, which says show people the matrix says, yeah, this is like, this is what you're all about. Let's do it. Uh, my now us, which, which wants a deep time says, you know, an hour and a half to share ideas. Like we're down. My future us, which wants a better matrix, says, you know, you can't just preach to the choir. Like, this is where you got to be. And my future me, which says don't sell out, says, no, you're just selling out. You're a sellout. You're a sellout. It told me no. My future me told me no. And, and suddenly I recognized this voice that had been getting so angry in the past. And it was my future me. And my future me, I, I pictured as like a bouncer, this big dude standing outside my values, trying to protect me and like keeping stuff out, it knew I didn't want. But because I, because I could see, because I had the act of awareness to see all of these spaces, I had the right, I had the agency to tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, no, no, it's cool. I got this. I got this. Let him in. And that was only possible because I could, I could just see this larger picture and I could really check in with all the ways that this decision was impacting me in my life. And, and so that led me to make a, a totally different decision and led me to like make that decision feeling good about it. 
and feeling like I was doing that in a way that was like true to me, in a way that was selfish, in a way that I wasn't like compromising, uh, but was like absolutely in line with who I am. And so I, I think of that as being like in a flow state of life, you know, and like we, we know what it is to be in a flow state, like with music or exercise, uh, being in the, you know, being outdoors, but like to get there, to get there on a day-to-day level is a lot harder, obviously. And it's not that I'm always there, but I know, but I know, I know the elements that create that for me. And, and, and this has become so powerful to where I even, I use this as a, to create my to-do list every week. I use the bento as a thing to generate ideas and like hearing different parts of me, what I should do. And, um, and, and yeah, and, and I even think about like a good day is a day where I like do something for each of these parts of myself. You know, I'm like, I, I create now us time every day. I, I call, I literally call a friend every day since doing this. I, I think about future us with my kid. I, it makes me think about my time with my, my, my son differently. Right. Cause I, I'm like investing in a way that is for him and for me. And it's like, you know, even more meaningful. So it, it it's, it's, been very powerful. And so for the last uh, eight months or so, I've been teaching um, at longer, been teaching workshops and guiding people, taught the work, taught this to a few thousand people at this point. And over the last nine weeks have been doing um, a weekly gathering meditation. I don't know what you want to call it. It's like 20 minutes called the weekly bento. And it's like, you know, about 40, 50 of us get together and we journal and I create exercises and experiments that we go through together to just like better see ourselves and to help and to help each other make decisions. And, um, it's cool. It's, it, it's, it's cool. It's, it's really, it's, um, it's, it's a real part of my life now. And I didn't know, you know, I, I stumbled across this, like I didn't, I didn't intend to create this. This was like a, you know, scratching my own itch and just trying to express this in a way that, you know, made sense to me. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I really, I really recommend it. And, and if people want to join the weekly bento thing, just bitly bit.ly slash weekly bento, put in your email address. And I do it three times a week now. Um, and, and, you know, people are coming and we're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, and this all started with, the idea of the choice that we make when it comes to what makes the most money. Yeah. Yeah. It was just trying to unpack how do we, why do we assume that that's true? Mm. Right. My question was my, my, my belief was our assumption that financial value is essentially the only rational choice. I think that that is, uh, yeah, I, I challenge that assumption. I, I think that the world of rational value is much wider than just financial value. And, uh, and I, I want to give an interesting example of that in a second. And also that, yeah, that our, our, our concept of self-interest, of what it means to act in one's self-interest is just based on a very limited idea of self-interest. You know, when you only see self-interest according to now me, which is how we see the world, like addiction is rational it's good for now me like your now me never wants to quit smoking right now me never wants to stop smoking the answer is to always keep smoking because it is addictive it's the other voices that say no when you only see now me sacrifice giving up something now to get something more later is unthinkable irrational like we, we lock ourselves out of like better choices through this limited way of seeing and so i was just trying to understand 
how we got here. Because I, I generally like, I'm an optimist about human beings. And I think we're all doing the best we can with what we know. There's just like infinite infinity that we don't know <laughs> infinity. And, and, and so I like, I look at all of us with such compassion, you know, I'm just like, we're doing, it's, it's amazing how far we've gotten and it's amazing how much farther there is to go. And like the amount of new knowledge that's out there is just like, we can't even fathom it. Right. And, and, and me just sort of asking this question of like, what, what new thing uh, could we know that would just like most dramatically accelerate or shift or better where, where we stand. And, and I really came to think it was in how we define self-interest, that that was like the deepest linchpin that if you break that open and to say, actually, your self-interest is not just what you want right this second, but is thinking about that 20 year from now. And it is thinking about the people in your life. It is thinking about the life those people will lead in 20 years, which makes all kinds of sense when you say it. But to say, and we can learn that as a very simple language and a framework, and we can all operate that way. And suddenly, say, creating a business whose goal is, say, sustaining itself through now me profitability, but say maximizing for uh, social value, maximizing for some future me value, maximizing for the next generation, instead of only maximizing for its now me financial returns, that that becomes a rational choice. And that we can start to even think about what is a good and a bad choice inside an organization quite differently. The, the best example I have of this is Adele, the pop star Adele in 2014, um, she went on tour and when Adele play, goes on tour, all of her shows sell out and they immediately go on secondary ticketing websites for hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Adele's a very like working class artist and she was not cool with this. So she found a startup in the UK that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist. And so Adele used this algorithm to identify like the top 30 percentile Adele fans in each market, to specifically invite them to buy tickets, offering them the same low face value she always would, not putting any restrictions on resale, but on the thesis that if we optimize for loyalty, then we'll create a different kind of show and people won't have to like pay out of the nose to, to come see her play. And so she did this. And so if you think about what she's doing, like these, these tickets still allow her to like be in the black. She's not losing money. So she's mm -hmm. satisfying her now me needs. She's satisfying her now me needs, but then she is, she's optimizing for the now us value of loyalty and a communal experience on top of that. And she's doing so in a way that's like, has a mathematical expression um, that is repeatable. Um, and that is like a way of distributing goods and services based on a non-financial value. Right. She's saying you satisfy a financial minimum and then there's something else that's being maximized on top of that. And so to me, the a bentuist uh, kind of transaction, a post-capitalist kind of transaction is one where you are. Yes, you are satisfying the financial requirement because duh, because duh. But like everything interesting happens after that. Everything interesting is about, well, what do you build on top of that? The notion of like the goal of business is just to grow the capital money supply. That's like, that's old. That's old shit. Like this is, we have done that. We have done that. The most important work to be done now is building new values and, and to, 
and, and to build businesses that are solving problems, to build businesses that aren't having to justify everything by its financial return, but instead say we will be a solvent, well-run organization that will, yeah, th that can operate itself. However, we are going to use all of the smart brains of like our ops team to, to optimize for something else instead, because it's important, because it's what is most coherent to who we are as a business, because it makes us hardest to compete with over the long term, uh, because this is like, this is what's going to make us a, a dependable business. And, and it's just, it is in your self-interest. This is the thing. It is in your self-interest. Like the Adele story, when I tell people the Adele story, people say, well, that's kind of cheating, right? Because if she's giving that, helping her lo most loyal fans, that helps her out in the long run, right? So it, it works out for her. And my answer is exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. It always works out for us if we do this. It's only when we think that now me is the only path to getting what we want, we limit ourselves. We limit ourselves. And so it's foolish, but it's a foolishness of blindness, right? And it's not, it's, I mean, yes, there's greed, there's those kinds of things in the world, but I think largely it's about, it's hard to keep those things in mind. As a society, we don't prioritize that kind of thinking, but I, I think those are like, easily achievable things like this being a, a part of our language, easily doable. Like, you know, in the book, I write about this being a 30 year change. This is a generational change, like easily doable. And, and, and if you begin to accept these other spaces as being real, as being places worthy of investment, as like, I'm going to go to school to, you know, to become an expert in future us value, whatever, like the shit we can build and do so without like everybody having to get equally woke or everybody having to adopt all the same whatever, but happening because it is demonstrably in our self-interest to do so. Because it just works out better. It works out better and it will be obvious. And so this is like, this is here, this is here. And, 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 and I think a lot of the changes that are happening now can be mapped and understood in this way. And also a lot of how we've gotten into trouble um, can be mapped using this. I mean, I'm working on a piece now showing how like all the institutions of modern life, uh, education, you know, pension, social security, uh, laws and police, unions, churches, all of those institutions existed to prop up the other parts of the bento. They were what created now us. They're what created future us. They're what created our future me. They're what supported those things, made those things possible. We have been decimating those things, especially in the United States, for decades. For decades, also we can optimize for more now me value. We've been bleeding the future dry. We've been bleeding the collective space dry just so we can squeeze out another 20% each year. And it's stupid. It's stupid. And, 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 the, and the US is in real danger of you know, epic historic downfall at this moment. And it's this shit. It's this shit. It's this. It's this. It's this blindness to the truth of our lives, which is that we're not isolated individuals, each doing going to get ours. Like yes, in some ways for that, but a person who's only that is an asshole. <laughs> a person who's only that is like doesn't have friends. A person who's only that is not who you want to be. And so, basing our society around that as our model citizen, you are going to create that person, and you're going to shut ourselves off. From the greater potential that we have as human beings yeah wow i i love this so look this was extremely helpful yancy and 
I, I can't thank you enough for just being so generous with your time. Uh, I've taken too much of it. Uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um, where's the best place people can find out more about your work and also your latest book? This could be our future uh, because, yeah, look, I agree for you 110%. People quite often are not in conscious control of the decisions that they are making. And it's so easy to forget yeah. because you're just operating off, yeah, like you say, just like like this matrix of of just self-interest it's, and yeah, yeah. It's it's easier to it's easier to do the the lazier thing, right? It is, and and we're not bad people because of that, you know. And we're not like it's just harder. It's just harder, and so I look at that with compassion and say we got to help ourselves out, you know. So here's the simplest thing imaginable, four boxes, a two by two. Like it doesn't get any simpler. It doesn't get any simpler um, as a way to try to ground us in what's really going on. And, uh, you know, listen, I mean, the, the, I, I teach like people I'm teaching. It's like, yes, it's CEOs, but it's like store clerks. It is, you know, it's, it's across the spectrum. People around the world are finding this meaningful. And so if you're into it, yeah, uh, bentoism.org is a site where you can like go through the process. Um, and then I, you can find me at ystrickler.com, my first letter and last name.com. Awesome. And uh, where can people uh, get a copy of your latest book? Uh, yeah, this could be our future, uh, a manifesto for a more generous world, available Amazon, booksellers, everywhere. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it dives into all these ideas and much more. And it's a, it's a fun read. Amazing. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry I went over. And uh, yeah, this was a ton of fun. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks so much, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.